For Isaiah, it is what ultimately occurs to Babel that teaches us the significance of the Cyrus story. Cyrus, at least initially, did not make Belshazzar's mistake. Whatever his larger religious worldview may have been, the Bible insists that he saw himself as an instrument in a larger plan and understood somehow that the Jewish return to Jerusalem was central to that plan. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 138, The Cyrus Cylinder and the Fall of Babel. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In 2013, one of the most important artifacts of the British Museum's collection went on tour, the Cyrus Cylinder, found buried in the Temple of Marduk in Iraq. Discovered in what was once the ancient mighty city of Babel, it is a testimony to the Babylonian Empire's undoing. Written on the cylinder is a proclamation issued in the 530s BCE by the ruler of Persia, Cyrus, who describes how he conquered Babel and reversed its tyrannical decrees. He had allowed exiled peoples that had been dominated by Babel to return to their lands, taking their objects of worship with them. The Cyrus Cylinder is indeed extraordinary to all interested in ancient history. But, as Professors Fant and Reddish point out in their book The Lost Treasures of the Bible, it is especially interesting to readers of Scripture because it connects us to a king on whom Isaiah's affection is bestowed in a striking series of prophetic predictions, biblical words with relevance not only to an ancient era, but also to our own age. Rightly understood, Cyrus is the most celebrated non-Jew in the Tanakh. Many years before the destruction of the first temple even takes place, many, many decades before Babel descends on Jerusalem, Isaiah announces in our chapters that it will be Cyrus, ruler of Persia, who will conquer the Babylonian Empire. Isaiah devotes an entire series of prophecies to describing the unfolding of these events. And amazingly, the prophet speaks of the Persian king in adulatory tones reserved for very few. Chapter 45 Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight, I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut and sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob my servant's sake and Israel mine elect, I have called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. In other words, God has selected Cyrus for an important role in his providential plan, though the Almighty understands that Cyrus has not fully embraced the Jewish religious vision and its teachings. Cyrus is seemingly not a monotheist, and indeed, on the cylinder, the king describes his reverence for the Mesopotamian god Marduk. Yet Cyrus is still celebrated in the Bible for his kindness to the Jewish people, and indeed is accorded by Isaiah the appellation Mashiach, God's anointed, emphasizing how he has been appointed by God to fill a role in history. And, according to the Bible, Cyrus himself recognizes the relationship between the God of the Jews and the city of Jerusalem. This means that the discovery of the Cyrus Cylinder is indeed all the more interesting for readers of the Bible. The director of the British Museum during the exhibition, Neil McGregor, further expounded on why the Cyrus Cylinder should be all the more interesting to people of biblical faith. Quote, when the Babylonian cuneiform was translated, it was immediately realized that the cylinder had a very special significance. Here was corroboration of one of the best-known stories in the Hebrew Bible. 
the liberation by Cyrus of the Jews deported to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, and the return to Jerusalem to build the second temple. Although the Jews are not mentioned by name in the cylinder, they clearly must have been among the people allowed to return home at this time, with their temple goods. The cylinder also confirmed existing impressions of Cyrus. In the Hebrew Bible, he is variously described as the Lord's shepherd and the Messiah, no doubt largely because of his favorable treatment of the Jews. Not only did he allow them to return to Jerusalem, but he also restituted the temple treasures seized by Nebuchadnezzar and provided royal funds to pay for the rebuilding of the temple, end quote. As such, Cyrus's humility and his lack of tyranny is indeed celebrated by Hebrew scripture, and he is contrasted by Isaiah with the kingdom that destroyed Jerusalem, the Babylonian Empire, or as Isaiah often calls them, the Chaldeans. Thus chapter 47, verse 5. Sit thou silent and get thee into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called the Lady of Kingdoms. I was wroth with my people, I have polluted mine inheritance, and given them into thine hand. Thou didst show them no mercy. Upon the ancient hast thou very heavily laid thy yoke, and thou saidst, I shall be a lady forever, so that thou didst not lay these things to thy heart, neither didst remember the latter end of it. Therefore hear now this, thou that art given to pleasures, that dwellest carelessly, that sayest in thine heart, I am, and none else beside me. So Isaiah says in the name of God. It is therefore striking to see the Cyrus Cylinder discovered in the ruins of Babylon, itself describing the havoc that Babylon has wreaked on many peoples and Cyrus's attempt to undo it. Many American tourists queued up to see Cyrus's proclamation, and rightly so, for it is one of the most interesting items from the ancient world. Yet it is particularly fascinating to study it in its larger biblical context by connecting the cylinder to other artifacts. For example, there is another cylinder in the British Museum that looks like the proclamation of Cyrus, but is largely ignored. It is known as the Nabonidus Cylinder, named for the son of Nebuchadnezzar, and it reads, quote, As for me, Nabonidus, king of Babylon, save me from sinning against your great godhead and grant me as a present a life of long days, and as for Belshazzar, the eldest son of my offspring, end quote. Few take time to look upon it. I've been to the British Museum many times, and until I read of it recently, I didn't even know it was there. But it is fascinating, because as we will see, ladies and gentlemen, later, when we study the book of Daniel, the Bible describes Belshazzar, heir to the throne of Babylon, sitting at a feast with the vessels of the temple in Jerusalem, celebrating Jewish defeat, when an ethereal hand writes on the wall, predicting the downfall of Babel at the hands of Persia. And Isaiah again emphasizes how Babel's undoing is a response to its arrogance. Chapter 47, verse 10. For thou hast trusted in thy wickedness, thou hast said, None seeth me. Thy wisdom and thy knowledge, it hath perverted thee. And thou hast said in thine heart, I am, and none else beside me. Therefore shall evil come upon thee, thou shalt not know from whence it riseth, and mischief shall fall upon thee, thou shalt not be able to put it off. And desolation shall come upon thee suddenly, when thou shalt not know. For Isaiah, it is what ultimately occurs to Babel that teaches us the significance of the Cyrus story. Cyrus, at least initially, did not make Belshazzar's mistake. Whatever his larger religious worldview may have been, the Bible insists that he saw himself as an instrument in a larger plan and understood somehow that the Jewish return to Jerusalem was central to that plan. Thus, the words that Ezra quotes from Cyrus at the end of the Hebrew Bible, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Cyrus is thus contrasted with Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian descendants who destroyed Jerusalem. And the call by Cyrus to the Jewish people to return is seen as the true defeat of Babel and its purported legacy. 
Isaiah thereby instructs us to see the return of the Jews to the Holy Land and the resurrection of a Jewish commonwealth on sacred soil as the ultimate victory over the tyrants that wreaked havoc on the Jews and on Jerusalem. What Isaiah declares in chapter 48, verse 20, can therefore be said by Jews as well today to all the tyrants of history. Go ye forth of Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans. With a voice of singing declare ye, tell this. Utter it even to the end of the earth. The Lord hath redeemed his servant Jacob. For us, reading the Bible today, the distinction between Cyrus and Babel is meant to teach us of archetypes throughout history and distinctions between providentially inspired leaders who sought to sustain the Jewish relationship to Jerusalem and those that sought to destroy it. Interestingly, only a few years before the Cyrus Cylinder Tour of America, it appeared elsewhere. In 2010, the artifact was loaned for a few months to Iran, who utilized it for their own propaganda, while the Iranian media pushed a campaign for it to remain in their own country. As one paper there put it, quote, Isn't it correct that the Cyrus Cylinder belongs to Iran? Isn't it true that the British government stole this valuable and ancient object of ours? End quote. Now, there are, of course, as others noted, problems with the notion that the Cyrus Cylinder belongs to Iran. The Cyrus Cylinder is not from Iran. It was excavated in Iraq. But there is a larger point as well, which is that Cyrus's legacy is associated with affirming the Jewish connection to Jerusalem and to the Holy Land, and indeed for setting the stage in the future for other world leaders to do the same. One example is Harry Truman, who, as we will discuss in later lectures, famously associated his own actions on behalf of Israel's birth with the legacy of Cyrus, and this reflected his own deep interest in biblical history. The journalist Merle Miller transcribed his conversations with Truman in a book titled Plain Speaking and describes therein how he engaged the former president in a conversation about the Bible. Miller reports that at one point during the conversation, the president suddenly walked out. He writes, quote, there was a brief interruption while the president left the room. I later learned that sometimes when he left, he refreshed himself with a small libation or two. And I think that is what happened this morning, because the president, when he returned, was more loquacious than he was in any other conversation. Of course, it may simply be that he was, as he says, vitally interested in the area and in the subject of Israel. In any case, he said, we were talking about the Bible, and I always read the King James Version, not one of those darn new translations that they've got out lately. I'll just add here, ladies and gentlemen, in the middle of my quote, that he did not use the word darn. And now, on with Truman. I don't know why it is, when you've got a good thing, you've got to monkey around changing it. The King James Version of the Bible is the best there is or ever has been or will be. And you get a bunch of college professors spending years working on it, and all they do is take the poetry out of it. The next thing they'll do, they'll probably appoint some committee of college professors to rewrite Shakespeare, end quote. And then Truman, referencing another important king of Persia, Darius, reflected as follows. But as I started to say, it wasn't just the biblical part about Palestine that interested me. The whole history of that area of the world is just about the most complicated, most interesting of any area anywhere. And I've always made a very careful study of it. There has always been trouble there, always been wars from the time of Darius the Great and Ramesses on. And the pity of it is that the whole area is just waiting to be developed. These are Truman's words. Persia interested Truman. The Persian era interested Truman. And the first prominent mention of Persia in the Bible is in Isaiah, where the prophet foresees that world leaders can help bring about the resurrection of the Jewish commonwealth. Merle Miller concludes his chapter on Israel by describing a visit of Israel's chief rabbi to the White House after Truman became the first world leader to acknowledge formally the existence of the Jewish state. Miller writes, quote, Only 11 minutes after Israel became a state in May, its existence was officially recognized by the United States. A year later, the chief rabbi of Israel came to see the president, and he told him, God put you in your mother's womb so that you could be the instrument to bring about the rebirth of Israel after 2,000 years. 
At that, great tears started rolling down Harry Truman's cheeks, end quote. Cyrus was the first named political leader who played a role in the redemption and return of the Jews, who played a part on behalf of Israel in the divinely directed drama that is history. But Cyrus was not alone, and his example exists as an inspiration to others, betokening providential moments yet to come. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.